It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 44, The Remaining Suspects. In this episode, Bob covered the Melgar's housekeeper, Liz's ex-husband, and Jim's brother, Irwin. Now, we got a lot of discussion on social media, and I've got a lot of questions here for you, Bob, so let's get right into this. Let's do it. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's start off with a post from Heather. She says, I'm not sure if it's been mentioned, but season two of The Confession Tapes is out on Netflix. And I know, Bob, you've been watching it, so what do you think? Yeah, I actually, I, I meant to post about this the night I started watching it, but that happened to be the same night that Sandy's appeal brief was filed, uh, the response brief by the state, so I didn't, I didn't get a chance to post about it because I want to talk about it. So I'll get onto the fan page and we can talk a little bit more about it. Um, but yeah, if you haven't seen the confession tapes came out last year, the year before, uh, a Netflix series where they look at, um, some, some very clearly and some potential false confessions where you see the actual interrogation tapes and then see the, the elements of the case that show that the police officers were using some questionable tactics to incite a false confession. Uh, and season two is, it's short. I think it's only four episodes, but man, it's, I, I, I can tell you if you haven't seen it yet. Episode two of season two of the confession tapes on Netflix will make you lose your mind. I mean, I was screaming at my TV. Becky was screaming at the TV like you have to be kidding me. Um, so it's, it's it's very good. I love watching any kind of shows like that. I've mentioned before uh, a show called Criminal Confessions on Oxygen uh, is another great one. I'm waiting for the new season of that to come out. But I, I love just for uh, educational purposes as kind of training to watch anytime we can see an interrogation taking place and see how people are reacting and, and the tactics the officers are using. And sometimes, you know, in the confession tapes, usually you're looking at actual true confessions most of the time, uh, as opposed to the, con that's in the criminal confessions and the confession tapes, you see kind of the other end of that, what happens when it goes wrong. So 
Uh, highly recommend checking out the confession tapes on Netflix season two and season one if you haven't seen it yet. All right, Tina says, I'm not sure I see the immediate rule out of Irwin, who is Jim's brother. She says, can you elaborate more on this? Yeah, so, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kind of cover Irwin all here, and then you can go through the rest of your questions, Mike, and see if there's anything that I didn't hit on, because I saw there was a lot of questions about him. Okay. Yeah, so, my, my rule out of Irwin, what I mean by that is, I'm not going to talk about Irwin anymore on the podcast. You know, as I said at the outset of the episode, we're reaching a point where I can't be covering things that, that are explaining what's happening in the active investigation right now. Uh, for a number of reasons, some legal, some practical, uh, and sometimes you just don't want people to know exactly what you're what you're up to uh, when you're investigating. And, and I'm not saying that as some sort of uh, subliminal message about Irwin. I mean, uh, uh, this is what I know about Irwin. Everything I said on the podcast, that's what I know about Irwin. Um, yeah, I, I do know, I, I'll take that back. I do know more about him. There was more investigation into Irwin. And what I know is that I don't have any clear indications that he actually had anything to do with this. Irwin certainly could be said that he had a motive in the changed will, but keep in mind, at the time this happened, Jim's mom and Jim and Irwin's mom had indicated that she wanted to change the will, but we don't have any indication that she actually had yet. And the old will landed much more in Irwin's favor. Okay, so... In the old will, everything was split up three ways. Uh, Jim's helping her with the lawyer to change the will to say that uh, that that Jim gets this one property and there's you know the split. Basically, Irwin gets less than he would have had before. So so Irwin breaking into the house and killing Jim and taking the the old will uh, is is really counterproductive. Now you could say that uh, for someone to to murder Jim that maybe that would stop the process, but Jim's mom was still of sound mind. I mean, she still could have done what she was planning to do. Certainly that would uh, that would eliminate one of the brothers to split things up with if there's only two instead of three. Uh, so, there, I mean, you can, you can see there's a potential for a motive there, but I honestly don't see it as a strong motive uh, at all. I, I don't see it. Is this not enough of an estate where I would see it as someone's willing to murder their brother for it? Um, that being said, it, it could be, you know, th that could happen. When I say I'm, I'm ruling out what I said in the episode was, unless we find some sort of conclusive evidence, uh, forensic evidence or some sort of witness testimony or something, you know, I don't, I don't have the authority or the power to, uh, to subpoena Irwin's cell phone records or emails or anything like that. And the bottom line is there's no indication we have from Jim's side of any of his electronics that there was an ongoing conflict with Irwin. The conflict with those two had happened four years prior to that. So I, I don't think it is, even if we were still continuing on with this season, even if we had a long ways to go, I wouldn't be talking any more about Irwin because there's just no evidence that he actually did this. There, there's a potential for maybe a motive there. And, and we know there was some animosity and Irwin could have had something to gain from this and did and did actually have something to gain when Jim died in the in the distribution of their mother's their mother's property but you know you can't use that logic on Irwin and not use the same logic on Sandy I don't think I see a strong enough motive for Sandy to do this either and she would certainly have you know, and in her case it's it's two-handed I mean yeah she, so there's this life insurance policy that's out there 
Uh, and then, you know, Colleen Barnett says it's due to religion, whatever it is. Again, you know, none of those are strong motives, but there's a potential for a motive there. There's a reason. And, and in most cases, if you look at anyone, you can find a motive there. You can find, is there in any way a, a way that this person benefited from the death of the other person? And in most cases, even if it's something that's devastating, you can still find there was some benefit there. But I just want to be clear. I mean, keep in mind, this is this is just like Sandy, who lost her husband, just like Liz, who lost her dad. This is a man who lost his brother. And I'm not about to come out and 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 tear this guy's life apart publicly because he may have had some motive there. Because one thing we have to always consider, and I wish people on the other side of our cases would do this as well, one thing you always have to consider is what if you're wrong? When you're out there attacking Sandy Melgard, and when you're out there attacking Liz Rose and just and just and just smearing their name all over the internet because you're convinced that Sandy murdered her husband and that and that Liz is somehow complicit in all this or, or is trying to protect her mom and doesn't care whatever her dad, whatever the argument is, have you ever thought for a second that you might be fucking wrong. And when you think about that, if you can get, because I have to do this all the time, I have to check myself all the time and consider before, and, and this is a lesson I've learned over years, but before I, I go on the air and talk about somebody, I mean, that, if you noticed, I haven't given you the names, the full names of any of these suspects, unless, unless it's somebody who is a convicted, documented person, for like Sinead Gonzalez. She she absolutely was caught red-handed in that home invasion. No question about it. She pled guilty to it and she went to prison for it. So I'll share her name. But the the neighbor boy and even the victims' families, you gotta ask yourself, if I come out this strong with this, what if I'm wrong? And what if you're wrong about Sandy? What if you're wrong and Sandy Milgar is actually innocent? Is there even a shred of regret? for what you've done to this poor woman and what you've said about this poor woman because you assumed that you had to be right. Now, Diane wants to know if Irwin might not have been directly involved in Jim's murder but could have hired somebody. Is this a possibility you've considered? Yeah, it's a possibility I've considered, but again, there's no evidence to support that. I mean, it's I'm not saying it's not a viable hypothesis or, or theory, but there's it's it's sheer speculation, and I don't have the ability or the authority to to suss that out. You know, I, I again, that would take a, a forensic analysis of Irwin's phone records and email records and bank records to see if something like that happened. And since the police never did that, we don't have that, I can't assume that that did happen. And and, and the other thing is too, I mean, this this scene does not at all read to me nor does it read to Jim Clemente as a hired hit. Nor does it look like uh, this was an intentional homicide. I mean, Jim's read on the scene was the same as mine, that this the, the, this was a homicide by accident. It was never the intention. These people didn't go into the Melgar's home with the intention of killing Jim. That happened after Jim started fighting back, and I think that's pretty clear from the medical evidence, the blood spatter evidence, from the profile of the crime scene. It just It does not at all look to me like this was an intentional murder. And 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 kind of circling back, you got to remember too. So if this was, uh, if this was, you know, Irwin trying to get his hands on the will, then why do it when the Melgars are home? Why why kill Jim in his home? Why not break in 
If you're going to hire somebody, have them break in when they're not home. Or if they had to get to the to the safe, do it while Sandy's gone. She was about to leave. I mean, there's just, you, you just really have to fit a lot of square pegs into round holes in order for this to work. And again, I'll reiterate, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not close-minded to any of these suspects actually being involved in this murder. What I'm saying when I say that we can rule them out barring any new evidence to indicate they were part of it is all I can work off of is the evidence that I have in front of me and have available to me. And based on that evidence, I see, I see no connection. I see no proof that, that either Irwin or the housekeeper or Liz's ex had anything to do with this. You know, there, there are people, there may be persons of interest that the police, well, there's certainly people the police should have looked into back in 2012 and we wouldn't have all these unanswered questions. But as of right now, uh, as, 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 uh, investigating this on the podcast, there's just, there, there's no reason in my opinion, uh, to drag these people's names through the mud with no evidence or proof to back anything up. Liz says, just wanted to confirm that the safe has been opened at some point since the murder. It has been on multiple occasions, um, and there was still stuff inside. I mean, based on what was left inside, you know, there was passports, there were uh, there was some medication in there, there was um, birth certificates, even some jewelry that was inside the safe. Uh, which to me is a pretty good indication that it wasn't opened by the home invaders. They weren't able to get into it because I can't imagine they would get into it, take just the will out, leave the other things behind, and then close and lock the safe behind them. I, I just, I don't think, and I think there'd be a lot more blood on the safe if that was the case. I think they made an attempt to open it, and as Jim was dying or slipping into unconsciousness, they they couldn't get in and they got out of there. Eva says, has anyone asked the families from the other home invasions about some recent jewelry purchases? If the people going into houses knew there was going to be new jewelry there, wouldn't the establishment where they got the jewelry be a good place to ask some questions? Well, no, I mean, as I mentioned, I, I spoke with uh, the woman I'm calling Isabel, the Kingwood home invasion victim. And then after I spoke with her briefly, we never had contact again. So I was never able to ask that question. I have reached out to the victim in the 2009 backyard barbecue home invasion a while ago and didn't realize when I did so that she doesn't speak English, which I found through the police reports that we received later. Um, but keep in mind, you know, because I thought, you know, there's, I'm, I'm going to get in hold of them and see if they have a, a housekeeper or a maid or if they bought any jewelry or, uh, you know, all these things. But then I remembered, remember, these home invaders were looking for the house with a safe behind the TV. And this family did not have that, which means they had the wrong house. So any information, it'll, it'll be difficult to connect Kingwood to that home invasions and even to the Milgars because it was the wrong house. So, and that's where, in my opinion, the police really dropped the ball in that one as well. I mean, they, they investigated that home invasion and the Kingwood home invasion far more thoroughly than they investigated Jim's murder. That is very clear from the police reports. They interviewed more people in the the 2009 backyard barbecue home invasion than they did in a murder case in Jim's case. To give you an idea of the the investigation that took place, if you compare it to other actual decent investigations, but they still, I, I think that they 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 didn't do they missed some opportunities, and in the fact that the the home invaders kept saying there's supposed to be a safe behind the TV, we have the wrong house. If if I was the lead investigator there, I'm knocking on every door in that neighborhood and asking who has a safe behind their TV because that's where you're going to get your lead. That's where you're going to make the connection. So by finding out 
if the people who were actually assaulted had made any recent jewelry purchases or anything like that. That's not actually going to help us connect anything because I don't believe they were the intended target. John says, despite having left weeks before, is it possible that the maid was an informant for the home invaders, telling them which houses had safes and other info? Yeah, I, I, the way he worded the question was, is it possible? Yes, everything, anything is possible until we can rule it out. But much like with Irwin, there's just no evidence to support the idea that this housekeeper did this. I've looked a little deeper and and done a little more investigation that we haven't talked about on the podcast, but uh, she was a longtime employee of the Melgars. They they trusted her. It was a sad time when she left and she moved far away. And it was, and I say weeks, but Sandy's not even sure exactly if I'm getting kind of relayed through Liz, so hopefully Liz will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you know, weeks could have been months. It was a, it was it was it was a ways, a, a quite a bit of time before this happened. She moved away. Now, people have suggested that that could mean that she's, um, you know, that she that was the reason she moved away is to is to avoid suspicion. I mean, but think about it. What is she? Again, my opinion of the crime scene is this was not an intentional murder. It was just a home invasion. There was nothing of incredible value in that safe. There was no money in it there was some jewelry not a lot there some 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 medicine there was nothing in there that's going to change someone's life to the point where i'm going to leave a job i've had for years with a family i've grown close to and move my move myself and my family 3 hours away into another location to distance myself from this crime scene so that this team can come in and rob the house of what i mean l- let's say Somehow they walked out of that house with ten thousand dollars, okay, ten, and, and it, which is much more than what was actually stolen. You know, there wasn't cash in the house that we're aware of, other than what was in the likely in the the Melgars' wallets. So it's ten thousand dollars. Certainly, the people that did the burglary are going to want most of that. And so she's she what she's going to get? Say she gets ten percent of it of ten thousand dollars. She's going to get a thousand bucks. She uproots her whole life and 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 leaves her job for a thousand bucks or say it's a hundred thousand dollars. Let's say there was a hundred thousand dollars in that safe and she gets 25% of it. Then so she's got 25 grand. She, she has now uprooted her life, moved everything, lost her, all the jobs she worked for in the Houston area, moved three hours away, starting over with 25 grand. How long is that going to last? It just doesn't, there's no motive there for that. And it, it could be incidental, you know, I mean, there's there's a, a potential hypothesis that not that she moved away in order to distance herself, but but it went the other way around where she's moving away. So since she's gone, she's going to go ahead and send these people in there. But again, what does she have to gain from this? You know, there's no they say there's no honor amongst thieves. So she's moved away. So now she tells her buddies, hey, this these people haven't. And what does she tell them? There's a safe. This is not a giant. It's a little safe. In the corner of a closet, it looks like a firebox. It looks very similar to the safe that I have in my room. And guess what? There's no money in my safe either. I have all of our important documents. We have our, our home defense weapon in in the safe that, that's all locked in there. That's all that's there. You know, there, there's there's no, I don't think that a lot of people that are living in a middle class or upper upper middle class neighborhood keep safes in their houses that are full of millions of dollars. You know, they like like in the movies. Where you know they they move the picture and open the safe up in the wall and there's stacks of cash in there. Nobody does that, and I don't think anybody would think that someone was doing that. Certainly not in Jim and Sandy's case. There's no indication from what we know, and likely from what 
uh, a housekeeper would know that there's anything in that safe other than just some important papers. You know, they, they, they don't, they've never displayed that they have tons and tons and tons of cash laying around. You know, again, just like with Irwin and, and with, with Liz's ex, you can, you can find a way for someone to have benefited from the death or from the burglary, but you can do that with just about anybody. And I just see no connection there with the, the housekeeper. But again, that being said, if further investigation finds there was some sort of connection, she's connected with other home invaders, or there's forensic evidence, which would be tough and for her case because she was in the house regularly and, and cleaned it. But in, unless we find some sort of connection there, I just I don't think it's worth even even speculating, certainly not publicly, that this woman may have had something to do with the burglary and Jim's death because there's just nothing there to warrant that other than speculation. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tracy says, I was wondering about the save company and if they have employees that deliver the safes or install them in customers' homes. Could this be a possible link to similar home invasions like Kingwood and the backyard barbecue crimes? No, I don't think so for a couple of reasons. One, the Kingwood home invasion family didn't have a safe. And the Melgar safe was not something you have brought in from a, a safe installer. If you look at the crime scene photos, you're talking about a safe that's maybe, I don't know, what, 16 inches by 12 inches by yeah. 16. So it, it's, this is a safe that you'd buy at, at Walmart or something like that, like a, a firebox like that. It's not something you, you have a, a, a company come in and install for you. It's a store-bought safe. Rodney says, what about the cable guy or satellite installer? What do you think of that? That's interesting when it comes to the 2009 home invasion because they said the safe was behind the TV. So that's why I thought maybe a uh, a housekeeper could have directed somebody towards that. But yeah, a, a cable installer would would be one too. But then there's no connection uh, that we're aware of with the Kingwood family because they didn't have a safe. Uh, and there was no other indications they knew anything about the house other than they thought they were looking for a safe. Uh, and then with the Melgars, there was no recent cable. They didn't even have cable, remember? They just had um, uh, homemade antennas that Jim would make so they could have free TV. So they didn't even have cable. So, no, I don't think a cable installer is, is viable. All right, this one's from Karen regarding Oscar Garcia. She says, I searched the registered address of the cell phone number found in Cinead's phone regarding the Kingwood home invasion, and it brought me to a case which is a potential wrongful conviction of a man named Omar Hutchison. He was sentenced to 23 years due to police and DA stating a cell phone belonged to him. 
Civil rights activist S.E. Rerun Barry tracked the phone and the P.O. box attached to it, which came out of Irvine, California. It's believed that was the same address that this phone was listed under. Yeah, I saw this post by Karen on the fan page, and uh, if you're not, if you're on the fan page, you track that post down and, uh, and read it because there's a whole article there. But yeah, it's it, it it just it further confirms to me that that Cinead and her family were connected. Well, we know that her family was is connected to uh, Colombian organized crime. And this is further confirmation. So if you remember in the episode when they ran uh, a couple episodes ago, when they ran um, the phone number from uh, Yosistas, Yosistas. Also, by the way, <laughs> apparently uh, when I tried to clarify that last week, I made it even worse uh, because I spelled it twice in two different ways. So <laughs> Yosistas, Mike is shaking his head at me right now <laughs> in disparaging disappointment. Uh, but it's, it's spelled Y-O-S-S-I-S-T-A-S. So it's like Yas, Y-O-S, and then Sistas with an A-S at the end. Or Yasi, Y-O-S-S-I, and then Stas, S-T-A-S. But anyway, that phone number, when police ran it, remember it was, it was registered to a man named Anonymous Lee, uh, which is clever, I think, and it was registered to a P.O. box out of Irvine, California. And what this article is saying is that there, there was a string of again organized criminals that that are using the same number, that phone number. Uh, I don't remember if it was that phone number or if it was the P.O. box. Um, in the background search, I think it was just the P.O. box. I get no, I guess it's the phone and the P.O. box attached to it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the the phone and the P.O. box attached to it. So it's registered in this. The same Irvine, California P.O. boxes where the customer registered the phone to. So it's it, it's a common method used by this 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 group of organized criminals, and that again connects it right back to Cinead, uh, because that was the number she was contacting and talking to about the Kingwood home invasion in the day leading up to it, and again uh, as she was being caught by the victims on the side of the road, she was getting texts from this person. So. Interesting and just more to the the point that I think that there's there's something as as Wendell Mass uh, had said on the fan page, and I think we talked a little bit about it last week that the the idea of there being some sort of federal informant involved in these cases that are causing uh, a lot of the unanswered questions that we have seem to point back towards this criminal informant angle, and we know that there were. Colombian CI is involved in some of these cases because it's in the police reports. Uh, we know there were U.S. Marshals involved, and we know that there's a whole lot of stuff missing out of these files that should be there. Ross says, before we move on to the next season, what is the status of the examination of the surveillance video? Yeah, as of right now, I'm still waiting on Grant Fredericks. I don't know if he's going to even get to it. So uh, uh, Mike Ware from the Innocence Project connected me to Grant and asked if he'd be willing to look at this, at this video. I emailed him and hey, I just got the 16 seconds of video I want you to look at. He said, sure, I'm willing to do it. I think I got a little bit overly in-depth with my my production to him. I wanted to give him all the, the information necessary. So I sent him a series of videos. Uh, you know, like as you know, here's reference video number one to show a car going from left to right. Here's reference video number two, a car going right to left. Um, so there were reference videos and the other clips. 
Uh, and I sent scene diagrams and showed him, you know, where the camera coverage was. So we knew what he was looking at. I sent, so basically I sent him this whole case file and, uh, he did email me back. He's super busy. He emailed me back last week and said, but, you know, I thought I was just looking at a quick video, Bob. I just, I don't have time right now to, to go through all of this. And so I, I did send him a message back saying, well, okay, here's the, here's the one video and let him know that, you know, we're willing to, to pay him for his time. Uh, to analyze it, and I haven't heard back. But from from talking to Mike Ware and things, I know that, that Grant is just is swamped with work, and uh, and his initial thought was just you know quick looking at a little video, and it turned into this much deeper analysis. So I, I, I think it'll be coming eventually. We'll get it back from Grant. I was hoping to get it back much quicker than we have, and um, if and when I I get his results back, then we'll we'll come back in with that, and I'll I'll explain that in an episode when it happens. Rebecca says, "I'm curious about how you pick a new case to cover." How many do you go through before deciding on one? I'm sure you get inundated with requests to look at cases. We do, and it, it, there's no number. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, I guess a good number is a lot. We're constantly getting pitched cases. I mean, uh, that never stops. Um, and we are only looking for a case when we're wrapping up one. So we kind of build up this backlog over the course of years to go back through and, and filter out, you know, cases that might interest us on the show along with, uh, we usually put out like a, uh, you know, an APB on the show, uh, in real time asking for new cases. So we've yeah, always got a lot going on there. Yeah. And that, that's when it gets really, like you said, we're always getting pitched and I do review them. You know, I, I usually don't bring Mike into that process unless it's something that is a potential, you know? Yeah. Right. You know, so uh, you know, I I might look through ten, fifteen in a month that just they they're not, and sometimes it just doesn't fit our criteria. You know, we're 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 typically going to cover cases that that involve murder, uh, and and I want to truly believe the person is innocent before I start it, and then we try to start back from that neutral point. But if there's nothing there, if if, if when I'm reading the case file, I'm looking like uh, I think this person very likely did it, and I can't see any indications uh, that they didn't. Then that doesn't, you know, we don't forget about it, but that doesn't usually make the final cut. And then there's there's just so much more that goes into that decision as we're filtering through all of them. You know, there's, I mean, from a production standpoint, it's kind of how the sausage is made. But you know, we're looking at are there audio assets, meaning are there are there recorded police interviews, are there recorded trial, uh, you know, trial proceedings, um, are there witnesses that are alive, are there people we can talk to, is, is the prison the person is in, are they somewhere where we can talk to them? Do they have clear phone connections? Does the person have a voice that you can hear? You know, that was one of the bummers here about season six was, uh, was we, we, we haven't heard from Sandy hardly at all. And again, we're always kind of learning. I mean, I, not to say that I regret in any way, shape or form taking this case. I, this is, I am, I am just as passionate, if not more so about this case than, than a lot of the other ones we've worked. You know, this, this is an absolute tragedy and I really think that we're helping and we're going to, and, and we're going to hopefully end up with, with Sandy going home. But, you know, one of the things we found out was very early on, we knew we could talk to her. I know the Texas system. I know we can talk to her and record calls. And what I didn't count on is the fact that we couldn't hear her for the first however long. And then, and then she had phone issues and then she got moved and then she's in the medical unit and then she's not allowed to record interviews anymore. Um, so I would have liked for you all to hear, to hear more from Sandy. Uh, along the way, and that just wasn't possible. So that's something because of that. Uh, me knowing that I wanted you to hear more from Sandy this year or this season, and you weren't able to, 
you know, is is that something that we can do? Or can we hear from this person? Can you get to know the person that's in prison? You know, and so there's there's just a million things, but the the primary driving force is the case. That's why we have the case submission form through our website. So without talking to anyone or hearing or anything that could influence in any way, I'm looking specifically at the case itself to determine if it moves on to the next step. And then, you know, like Mike said, we're constantly mid-season, I'll, I'll read one of those, oh, this one looks interesting, and I'll send it over to Mike, and a lot of times I'll have Mike start doing some of the initial research on it, and then, you know, we, we kind of have those flagged for when we're actually ready to to look at a case. But the sad the saddest part about it is, uh, especially after the 2020 show, I mean, we got still getting flooded. Every time they rerun that, we get a flood of everything from calls to emails to forums. People want us to look at their cases. The sad part is, you know, the the case we're moving forward with season seven, I think, is is a great case, and I cannot wait to get it started. I think you guys are going to love it. But the, the sad thing is, you know, there was at least five other cases that we looked at that I think you know, we're, we're potentials. They're cases that we, that we could have, we could have used and we could have went that way, but there was just other elements of, of this particular case that led us to choosing this one. And then maybe circle back to those in, an, in another season. And, uh, you know, and, and as I mentioned a couple months ago, when we announced that we're kind of, t- we're, we're starting to wind down season six is that, you know, format wise, you know, this, we've had a couple seasons, this one included that went a full year um, and we're gonna try to make make those a little tighter and not not have the cases go on so each season go on for as long and and continue doing our work that we're always doing behind the scenes to come back with with updates. So um, we'll be getting we'll be cycling through cases more frequently. I hope moving forward. Matthew wants to know what more can be done or can the listeners do to help Sandra after the season ends. You know the the biggest thing that you can do for Sandy is to write to her. Honestly, I think I think you know, and, and spread the word, spread the word about about the podcast. And we're done with it, but it's on the internet; it's there forever to, to let more people know about our case. Keep putting pressure where pressure needs to be placed. But you know, prison is hard for a lot of reasons, and I think the one thing that that people on the outside don't realize is just how incredibly difficult and isolating it is to not have contact with the outside world, to not, you know, to, to have to fight and save and for anything to read. And you're only talking to the same people. And, and I, I know with every person we've worked with, you know, when Jesse Eldridge calls me, the first thing he always says is he, he, he is all excited about all the letters that he got since last time we talked. Uh, it was the same thing when Ed was in prison and with Kenny Snow and Sandra and George Powell, all these people, it, it's, it makes such a massive difference to them to be able to when mail call comes around that they can pull out uh, a stack of letters and just read and and just just people they can write to and talk to and just hear about what's going on with their lives and just knowing that there are people out there that care about them i think that you know and the easiest thing that anybody could do to continue to help sandy is to is is to write to her and, and let her know you're supporting her you know, as things come up with the the case itself, at this point, as as we're going to talk about on Sunday, you know, the, the, there's there's a point where I need to start even backing off with the with the case itself, and we'll talk about that, as I said on Sunday. So there's not a lot we can do with it as far as the investigation goes, but with the information that's out there, if there's leads that uh, that you notice and things, if you share them with us, and we can get them to uh, to the defense attorneys and 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 make sure that those leads are being followed up on. Um, but anything you do to spread the, spread the word about the reward, that's huge. 
and and we're doing that. We're going to talk about that on Sunday as well. You know, just somehow we've got to crack this thing open. Um, but I don't know from a listener standpoint as we move forward that there's there's a lot you can do. The biggest thing for Sandy is to just help keep her spirits up. Write to her. Let her know you care. Let her know you support her. And also, you know, we we still haven't corrected the 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 medical situation so you know go to the free sandy melgar page get the information there if you haven't already done that go and write through the letter writing campaign to try to get sandy the proper medical care that she deserves and she needs while she's in prison with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lauren says, can we review the Harris County appellate brief? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, real brief. It was a short document. And for those of you that aren't on social media and don't realize, the Harris County DA's office had filed an extension and was granted to July 1st to reply to the Seacrest appellate brief for Sandy. They, I think it was Monday, uh, Monday or Monday or Friday, they finally did file their response brief early. It was, well, late, but earlier than their deadline, their latest deadline. Uh, it's short. It's 41 pages long. It's a pretty quick read. And it, to me, it reads the same way that, most of them read, you know, because a lot of people were were reading the response and they're like, they're, they're so pissed off and why are they twisting this and doing that and it looks bad or because you know, they sound like they're making a case. Remember, this is an unchallenged document, just like when the when when the secrets filed theirs. Everything looks great when they file theirs, then the state responds to them and, and they try to make it look bad. It's because it's unchallenged. It's normal. They're only stating the strong points or what they view as strong points of their case. Me personally... Uh, I think that it was it was not terribly well written, and I read into it a, a slight sense of desperation on the part of the prosecution. And I say that because there's some things in the brief that they absolutely, I mean, they're filling pages. They, they've written things into the brief that they absolutely known are going to do them no good. So keep in mind that uh, for direct appeals, you cannot bring in new evidence. You have to work only off the record which means the trial transcripts and the exhibits that were put into into the the record during the trial. And so we see, you know, the the whole controversy that's gone on about the 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 computer logins and that you know there's that the Eric Devlin testified that uh that there was no human activity on the computer, but his forensic report shows that there was an incorrect login and I think 1102 doesn't say AM or PM and then another one at like 1139 or somewhere around there a successful login there's a whole lot of drama surrounding that. I'm not getting into it. As I've said a long time ago, I don't know anything about these computers. I've never spoken to Eric Devlin. I am only taking the word from from the people that have contacted them, from the Seacrest, from uh, from the, the people that, that are claiming these are actual logins. I don't know the answer. I, I have no way of knowing the answer. Um, but what I do know is, in the record, that report, the forensic report, was submitted into evidence and it was submitted into evidence while Eric Devlin was testifying, and Eric Devlin responded to direct questions and said on on the record that there was no human activity on those computers during the time in question. 
So while I say there's some, some acts of desperation there, the state included that in their response brief. Their, their points that they're putting in there is that there was submitted into the record a report that shows that there was this incorrect login and login. as though the, and, and when you're reading it, and I'm sure the people that are in support of that are, 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 are hoorayin' over that, that oh, it made it, it made it in the report. It means nothing. The person that wrote it in there knows it means nothing because they can only work off the record. Whether it's legitimate or not, it does not matter. Much the same as any new evidence that we can come up with does not matter in the direct appeal. Because I, I, I have, and I'm, I'm not speaking for Mac or Allison. I have no idea what they're going to do with this. For me, when I'm reading it, I was like, well, that's, that's, that's two lines in the, in the, in there because the, the defense gets the final word. So they get to file one more response and that's it. And then it goes to either a ruling or a hearing. But all they put is that information in that report was testified to on behalf of the expert testified to it, the person that wrote the report. And he said right here on this page in this paragraph, there's no human activity. And it's done. It won't be considered. It, it, but so it, it, it's irrelevant to the case uh, based on my limited legal understanding. Um, but, but it's telling to me that the state is trying to wedge that in there. It tells me a couple things. It tells me, one, that very likely the original prosecutor, Colleen Barnett, is probably in the appellate attorney's ear constantly trying to wedge that in there. Uh, but it also tells me that they, they know they don't have much of an argument. If they're trying, if in order to fill for only 41 pages, they had to add that, knowing that it's going to mean nothing. Uh, to me, that seems very telling. Uh, and the, the you know, the, the main point of the the defense's brief of Mac and Allison's brief is the insufficiency of evidence. Basically, that the, that the jury convicted wrongly. They were wrong when they convicted because there was not sufficient evidence to support the conviction. And so most of this brief that the state filed in response to that is saying how, uh, you know, the jury's free to interpret the evidence the way they interpret it, and and the, it's the jury's job to make a decision. They made the decision, so it doesn't matter what the evidence is. And, it, and as I'm reading it, I'm just, the, the, that's the point. The, the entire point, and all the case law cited by Mac, the entire point is that the jury interpreted the evidence wrong. And so, there, so, so Mac makes a point of error. It points out that or has this point of error in the uh, the appeals brief that says the jury misinterpreted the evidence. They convicted on insufficient evidence. No no logical trier of fact could have seen this evidence and came to the the conclusion that Sandy is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And then the state's response is, well, the jury gets to decide and decipher the evidence. It's almost just like a, a circular argument. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Obviously, yeah, I, I was expecting them to bullet point all of the points that Mac made, saying, "Well, this is they're saying this, but that's incorrect because of this, and so on and so forth." Uh, and at the end of the day, it was they're just saying the jury gets to decide the facts, whereas Mac is saying the jury decided the facts incorrectly because there was not sufficient evidence. Essentially, what and I'm I'm I'm, I'm talking in circles now. But essentially what, what the original appeal brief from Mac is saying is the jury did not do a good job. They got this wrong. So because the jury did not, did not decipher the evidence properly, judges, we want you to look at the evidence and you tell me if you think this was sufficient evidence. That's the whole point of that point of error. So, so the, the, basically, long babbling, cut down very short. I personally 
think that, you know, I, and again, not a lawyer, not a legal expert. I do read a lot of these and I've seen how they get decided in a lot of ways. I've, and I have no prediction of how this is going to get decided. Um, but to me, that was, that was a pretty weak response brief, um, back to, which could mean a couple of things. You know, it could just mean they don't have much of an argument. It could mean that the, the that the appellate side of Harris County is not digging their heels in and fighting hard. They're not so confident in, in the conviction. There's certainly not enough to really, you know, they're, they're not Thiru Vignaraja, who is uh, the the prosecutor in Anon Syed's case, who was just fighting and scrapping and doing and lying and doing everything that he can possibly do to stop Anon Syed from going free. I did not get that impression from this brief at all. I, I they're 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 trying to find elements of the law to support their side of the case. And in my opinion, they did not do a great job of doing that. And that's no insult to them. I just don't think there's much of an argument to be made. I think that Mac's argument that the jury convicted on insufficient evidence was a sound argument. That's my opinion. Okay. And lastly, Bob, there is another new Netflix show coming out today. There is. And so this is dropping Friday, the 28th of June. And today on Netflix, uh, the show Exhibit A is being released. And episode one of Exhibit A is all about the George Powell case, our season four case. And we've been looking forward to this for a long time. I can't wait to watch it. Uh, so you definitely need to tune into that. But on the topic of George Powell, right before Mike and I started to record this interview, I got a call from Mike Ware. Uh, the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas, the person who is representing George Powell, and he called to let me know that the Court of Criminal Appeals has made a ruling in George's case. So as you remember, the lower court, during his post-conviction relief hearings, threw out George's conviction, but in Texas, that automatically then gets sent up to the Court of Criminal Appeals uh, for them to either confirm or deny the judge's ruling. We got that ruling, and uh, Mike was kind enough to hop on a call real quick with me. The sound quality's not great. He was literally driving down the road when he got the ruling, and he pulled over into a Starbucks to give me a call to tell me what happened. So here's Mike. Mike, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Bob. Can you hear me? I can. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm actually uh, pulled over in a Starbucks. Is it too noisy in here? No, it's fine. I'll just tell everybody okay. you're in a Starbucks when they hear it. Okay. <laughs> I, I got I got the news when I was on the road, and so I pulled over to uh, uh, well to to call you and to hopefully get a chance to look at the opinion, which I haven't even looked at yet. Okay, so uh, fill us in on what you know. So this is all kind of breaking. This just happened, but the Court of Criminal Appeals has issued a ruling in Georgia's case, and what it, what did they rule? Well, you know, this happened just about an hour ago, and uh, while I was on the road, I got the news of it. And they um, uh, basically went with the trial court and found that the uh, prosecutors had committed prosecutorial misconduct, which de which denied George a fair trial and that he should have a new trial. Now, what's real odd about it is that they did not even acknowledge our actual innocence claim. They did not even acknowledge our uh, junk science claim. So they didn't address any of the Grant Frederick's uh, testimony and evidence. Uh, they didn't address any of the Michael Knox junk science testimony and evidence. They just found that there was serious prosecutorial misconduct and that George should have a new trial. Now, I haven't even had a chance because George is in lockdown. 
I haven't even had a chance to tell him the news yet. So uh, we're trying to set up a telephone conference with him. But uh, so this is all something that's happened within the last hour. Okay, so the good news is uh, at this point, his conviction is vacated. And, Correct. And so he will be he's granted a new trial. I mean, I know it's hard to predict, but uh, I mean, do you foresee them going forward with a new trial, knowing that you have Grant Frederick's uh, expert testimony that will be coming in? Well, there's all sorts of we've got all sorts of things to decide and do um, before that even really becomes an issue. One is I anticipate we will file a motion for reconsideration with the Court of Criminal Appeals, pointing out that they did not address our actual innocence claim. So that can that can put a whole new timeline on this. There's a lot I can say about that, but I probably should should wait. Um, and and not comment on that particular topic right now. Okay. So they didn't deny the claims of for the junk science or the actual innocence. They just didn't acknowledge them. Is that something that the the CCA can do where they, you know, will give a rule on that later or is this their final word on the matter at this point unless you you file reconsideration with them? Well, this is their final word on the matter uh, uh until and unless they, you know, consider uh, a motion for rehearing or reconsideration, uh, unless they decide to revisit the issue. So it, it's there, there's actually some case law that says when an actual innocence claim is raised, they have to at least address it. And so it's just unusual that they did not even address it. Okay, so I'm sure at this point you have a lot of planning to do to figure out where to go next with that. What? What issues of, do you know, because you haven't read the brief yet, but uh, or the opinion yet, do you know which issues of prosecutorial misconduct were raised? Well, yeah, I know what they were. I raised them, so I know which ones were raised. The prosecutors, the prosecutors intentionally suborned perjury with the jailhouse informant. Uh, they solicited perjury from him, and they knew it was perjury, and they, they failed to correct it. And then they even argued it. Uh, to the jury, his perjured testimony. Uh, so that that is one claim. The other is they had a deal with the jailhouse informant, and they failed to disclose that deal to the uh, to the defense. And they even lied and said he didn't have a deal when he did. So that's the prosecutorial misconduct. And the court of criminal appeals confirmed both of those those issues. Correct. Okay. Um, so we've got a lot happening moving forward, and I know you're still on the road and itching to actually read the rest of the opinion. Uh, so I'll let you go. I appreciate you taking a minute to to call us in and uh, to call in and update us on all of this. Uh, and this is it's interesting in the light of um, Mike and I were just getting ready to record uh, this week's Friday episode, and we were going to be discussing that on Friday the the Netflix documentary Exhibit A comes out, and the first episode features George's case. Yes, that's absolutely true, and it's going to be all about the forensics, which were ignored by the Court of Criminal Appeals. That's pretty interesting, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, that is, is pretty baffling. I wonder if the judges on the Court of Criminal Appeals panel will will watch the Netflix episode. Well, I, you know, I, I hope so. They they evidently uh, didn't pay any attention to the what the Texas Forensic Science Commission found. But um, like I said, we have a we have a long ways to go on this case. 
Okay, well that's great. Then Mike, I'm going to let you go, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. This is going to episode is going to drop on Friday, so when when the listeners are hearing this today, uh, we're going to get to see Exhibit A on Netflix. And uh, Mike, again, thank you so much for taking the time to call into us. Well, thank you, Bob. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so we got some really good news in the George Powell case. As you heard from Mike, we got a we got a long way to go. Different options, but ultimately, the good news is here is George Powell's conviction has been thrown out. And at this point, we're still fighting for his actual innocence. And and there's a few different ways that that can be tackled. And as with all of our cases, we will come back with any updates. But for now, this is uh, perfect timing that this ruling came down today because when you're done watching this tonight, when you settle in, make sure you turn on Netflix and check out episode one of Exhibit A, All About George Powell. And coming up on Sunday will be our Season 6 finale episode. So make sure you tune in for that. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com.
Requires SkyStream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second. 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply.